This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair Number 32, November 22, 1982. The last time we were together, I discussed a very important work about what is going on in Hollywood, David McClintock's Indecent Exposure, a true story of Hollywood and Wall Street. One of our problems, of course, is that the media in this country gives a distorted picture of the United States. Not too long ago, as you know, because we reported it here, Douglas Kelly was in Europe on a trip for Calcedon. While there, he met, in France specifically, the wife of a British Foreign Service officer. She spoke about the fact that she had, in the various countries where she had been stationed, seen a lot of the American television programs, our uh, detective and crime and uh, hospital and other stories, the whole variety of them. They are, you know, shown all over the world, and with foreign subtitles or voices dubbed in, as the case may be. She said that having seen so much of these pictures, as well as films, she felt she knew the United States and was therefore very distressed when her husband, a few years back, was given an assignment in the United States. To her, it was a nightmare to come to the country depicted in films and on television. To her amazement, however, she found there was no connection between the America portrayed on films and in television programs and the reality of American life. She remarked that she had never seen a more Christian country, a place where people were essentially law-abiding, where most people went to church, and where the family was important to people. In fact, she said she hoped someday she could migrate to the United States and settle down here in some smaller city or community and enjoy the stable life there. Now, I could go on and cite other examples of that same experience. I cite that because it's a very recent one. It happened to Douglas Kelly just a couple of months ago when he was in France. The simple fact is that we do not get an honest picture of what American life is about either in this country or abroad. As a result, foreigners have a very false image of American life, and Americans themselves have a distorted image of what life in this country is about. This means that we have a real problem with the media. The problem is essentially religious. Humanism governs the media. We know from recent polls taken that 80% or better of the men in newspapers have no connection with any church. We know that the percentage in movies and television is just as high, if not higher. As a result, the picture they give of this country is militantly anti-biblical. It reflects their faith, which is humanism. I'd like to read from the book I mentioned earlier, Indecent Exposure, by David McClintock, on page 243. He cites an enthusiastic movie review which appeared in the Los Angeles Times, an article about Close Encounters, a 
popular film of just a few years ago, and the review was written by a very prominent science fiction author, Ray Bradbury. This is what Bradbury wrote, and I quote, We feel ourselves being born, truly, for the first time. Close Encounters is in all probability the most important film of our time. For this is a religious film in all the great good senses, the right senses, of that much-battered word. Spielberg has made a film that can open in New Delhi, Tokyo, Berlin, Moscow, Johannesburg, Paris, London, New York, and Rio de Janeiro on the same day to mobs and throngs and crowds that will never stop coming because for the first time someone has treated all of us as if we really did belong to one race. I dare predict that in every way, aesthetically or commercially, it will be the most successful film ever produced, released, or seen. It will be the first film in history to gross one billion all by itself. Every priest, minister, rabbi in the world should preach this film, show this film to their congregation. Every Muslim, every Buddhist, Zen or otherwise in the world can sit down at this movable feast and leave well fed. That's how big this film is. That's why it will be around the rest of our lives, making us want to live more fully, packing us with its hope and energy, unquote. Now, Bradbury says this is a born-again experience to see this film. Well, that's what our current films are all about, so that you can have a religious experience but not a Christian one, a humanistic one, to be born afresh as a humanist, as Bradbury would have it. So we are getting a radical distortion. We're getting a missionary message preached on television and in the films. And our three networks are dedicated to the gospel according to humanism. Now, the important question for us is, what can we do about it? And to me, this is the key question. We have all too many people, some of them very powerful people, who bewail what's on the networks and on films. And that's all they do. In fact, if they're interested in doing anything about it, they go to the very characters, I had to fish for a decent word to use, that are giving us this garbage. Now, on this easy chair, we, we are going to dis discuss what can be done practically. And we have one of our Chalcedon people here with us, John Saunders. He is an actor, a film writer, and a producer. Right now, he has just received word that he shall be producing an important documentary. John has also appeared on a number of films, and uh, his face is familiar to everybody, although you may not uh, know his screen name, which is John Quaid. Uh, he appeared, by the way, in the Clint Eastwood uh, films, uh, any which way, both of them, as the chief of the motorcycle gang, you might recall. Uh, he is a dedicated Christian, an able lay preacher who preaches to groups up to 12,000 and is in demand for conventions of businessmen because he is an able, forthright, and thoroughly Christian conservative speaker. John, we're glad to have you with us. Today. Well, I'm glad to be here, Rush, very much. Now, uh, you've read uh, McClintock's Indecent Exposure, and you're familiar with this problem. Would you agree with what I said about humanism being the militant religion of films and television? 
I would um, not only agree with you, but I would uh, I would go considerably beyond that. Uh, and just I'd like to go back to one thing you said uh, when Surely. you were quoting when you were quoting uh, Ray Bradbury a while ago. I know uh, Mr. Bradbury, having uh, met him at the Actors Studio West in in uh, Hollywood when I was there several years ago, and. Uh, uh, it's interesting that another friend of mine who is a, a painter, Joe Taylor, I, we're all familiar yes, with Joe, Joe Taylor's work. Joe just recently did a review of Close Encounters from a thoroughly Christian perspective. And he went through and he documents that the filmmaker, in this case Spielberg, goes through and specifically borrows virtually, I think it's somewhere around two dozen specific Christian motifs and techniques and retranslates them into his motion picture. Uh, for example, if you, if you remember the one-sheets or the ads that you see in the newspaper with the hand of E.T. touching the hand of the young boy, mm -hmm. well, that's a direct parallel from uh, the work, I believe, by Michelangelo. Yes. Okay. Now, that's only one parallel that he uses, but he also goes through and points out time and time again how the dialogue is essentially uh, uh, the humanist reinterpretation of Christian evangelistic techniques. He also goes through and documents the fact that Spielberg himself, as well as a number of other film directors and writers, openly acknowledge the fact that their religion is the occult. Now that's exactly what Spielberg says. So it shouldn't surprise us that uh, uh, the humanistic perspective in films and television uh, is taking the direction it's taking and becoming more and more militant, uh, more and more insistent, uh, at, at times even screaming uh, its humanism. Um, uh, it shouldn't surprise us at all. As far as I'm concerned, it's just the logical consequences of the ideas they hold insofar as how they interpret the world. You know, the sad fact is I actually had one uh, reasonably prominent Christian who I believe is now associated with a religious foundation uh, call me long distance to tell me this, that this was a remarkable film, very Christian, mm -hmm. that it came so close in mm -hmm. so many things to paralleling the gospel and uh, we should uh, be encouraged, and so on. <laughs> he yes. failed to see that it was an obvious parody of the gospel from mm -hmm. a radically humanistic perspective. Exactly. This is one of our problems, that uh, people out there are unable to make the distinction between humanism and Christianity. Well, that's primarily because uh, the, idea, the idea of authority itself is not clear in people's mind. Um, in most, in many Christian circles today, the Christian has no real concept of what the biblical authority of a sovereign God, what this is in real terms as over against the humanistic concept of authority. Uh, as a result of that, Christians can see uh, humanists using a lot of of uh, obviously or what appear to be Christian concepts and ideas, but they don't understand that by virtue of the humanist's radically different concept of authority behind those ideas, what the humanist means by the words and terms he uses and what the Christian means by the words and terms he uses are two entirely different things. Mm -hmm. And Christians, without that, that, that really solid and broad-based, comprehensive, uh, idea of what the Christian authority is all about. Without that, as the rock and the anchor and the foundation from which one interprets reality, then you're then you're sucked into that whole humanist perspective, and and you take a false sense of hope that perhaps the world is going to turn around to a certain extent because look at what the humanists are doing over here. They're being almost evangelical. Yes, they are being evangelical. No question about it. But it's an evangelism that uh, has to do specifically with humanism and the propagation of the humanist concept of authority. John, at several times uh, in the past, you've 
told me and gone on to document it very specifically that the film studios are very vulnerable today and in uh, a very insecure position as far as their financial future is concerned and that the television networks themselves are highly vulnerable. Do you want to tell uh, us more about that now? Well, uh, there's, a there's a lot of reasons why this is the case. Uh, the, the basic problem is this, is that, as we all know, humanism is essentially a closed system of thought. It has no external source of revelation or authority by which to measure or mark its progress, its advance or decline. As a result of that, it can't see the logical implications of its own ideas. Example, for over a decade now, almost uh, every major polling service in the United States has told the networks time and time and time again that the total percentage of viewers watching television is declining. All right? Now, the networks have tried to find, along with their ad agency partners and, and, and along with film and television producers, a number of ways to try and explain this phenomena. They blamed cable. They've and and uh, they've blamed uh, other sports or the advent of, of major sports um, events that are are at a much higher rate of frequency and drawing in a vast number of people uh, uh, for uh, weekend ventures away from the home and away from. There's all kinds of diversions going, uh, and and the majority of it fails to just simply deal with one basic problem. The, the networks are not producing the product that the people want to see. There are other opinion polls and surveys taken time and again which demonstrate that over 60, I think it's 64% and a fraction of the American people are fundamentally conservative in their worldview. The product they're getting in films and television is fundamentally liberal. Mm -hmm. Now, the sheer bottom-line facts in the case, as far as, as any any uh, first-year businessman would mm -hmm. say, is that the, the producers are not meeting the product demands of the, mm -hmm. of the marketplace. Now, that's, that's the bottom line. And the networks know this. They have no, and, and they've known it, as, as I've said, for over a decade. They've seen this coming, and they've tried to find ways of, of turning it around. They've attempted many, many different kinds of programming techniques. Uh, they see, um, uh, for example, we've had these news magazine formats. Now, in part, that's, that's uh, one way to capitalize on, on the interest that people have today in the latest news. You know, a society in panic really wants to know what the latest news is, so the networks exploit that, that in these news magazine formats, 20, 20, 60 minutes, and a number of other ones. We see uh, a very high mortality rate among new programs. Uh, a very high mortality rate says very simply that the producers and the networks don't know what the public wants. And they, they, they employ a shotgun approach, and they, get, they figure if they put out enough programming that one or two of them is bound to hit, and that'll give them some kind of indication as to the mood of the populace. And uh, we see these shows come and go. It used to be that a, that a show could stay on the air for 13 weeks before it was pulled. Now, if you don't get a substantial market share in the first three or four weeks of, of the show, uh, of the shows being aired, it comes off immediately and is replaced immediately. The point is, is that the networks themselves are in a very, very advanced state of what we would call epistemological blindness, presuppositional blindness. They can't interpret the reality about them, they can't interpret what the audience needs, they can't interpret the world, and they're just putting out product hoping something will click and hit. When you bring this information up to them, they of course deny it and find all kinds of ways of explaining it. But one very interesting little event happened here about a year and a half ago in Ojai, California, in which there was a committee called together, a group of Hollywood's elite you know, the producers, directors, writers, ad agency types, network people. They had even had two or three theologians who, of course, were uh, from the uh, liberal camp and were, uh, uh, of course, would be um, in agreement with most of the major 
concepts being presented, and these people came together in order to deal with the question of the proliferation of pressure groups in primetime television. How in the world are we going to deal with these radical new right Christians that are coming along and screaming about product and the quality of product? Well, they kept the media out of this three-day conference. But after the conference closed, they published their own summary, which is available, I think, from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And uh, it's about 45, 50 pages. But in this summary, some very revealing statements are made. One, the networks know that they're not producing the kind of product the public wants because one direct quote from the thing, uh, from the report, says it's kind of tough to talk to these people on the new right when you have dirty hands. Mm -hmm. Now, that's exactly what the man yeah. said. When you have dirty hands, it's very tough to talk to these people. Uh, the other point was, uh, and I think it was Harriet Pilpel said, that... Uh, she said, we have to recognize that we in the media are the elite and that perhaps it would help our cause some if we brought some people into our group from the lower socioeconomic ladder, mm -hmm. uh, ladder rungs of society. Well, it's fairly self-evident that the networks don't want to talk to the new right. They don't understand it. They don't want to deal with it. They're not going to produce product for that marketplace. And furthermore, they're going to do everything possible to try and destroy and undermine that marketplace because it constitutes a threat to their own economic well-being. Uh, the bottom line, in, in, to use another uh, film and television term, is the bottom line is very simply this. The networks know they're in trouble. They suspect very strongly why they're in trouble, but they have no alternative philosophy or worldview from which to produce a radically different kind of programming. And they're just hanging on uh, uh, by the skin of their teeth right now. The, and, and the vulnerability of the networks is, is absolutely immense. Uh, we recently went through a whole spate of first writer strikes and then director strikes and actor strikes, and everyone was calling everybody names, and, and there was massive controversy um, in a previous... Uh, a uh, year prior, rather, to the strikes, I was working as much as I wanted to work as a film and television actor, and during the strike, I think I had uh, off and on five weeks' work over an 18-month period. Well, the networks, uh, of course, took what steps they could to try and counteract that, and the writers and directors and producers took steps to, you know, solidify their own positions and try and protect themselves. But in the final analysis, um, uh, the situation now is even worse than what it was before. For example, um, there's a floor under the cost of production in Hollywood. Uh, a typical one-hour dramatic uh, television uh, episode, episodic television it's called. Episodic television in one-hour format takes somewhere between 600000 and $800,000 an hour to produce. Well, if a network who presents that program uh, is limited in terms of the number of minutes of commercial time, say 10 or 12 minutes an hour, I think 12 minutes is about standard now, and if they can only charge, say, 60 or 65,000 a minute, you see, for their commercial mm -hmm. time, because the, the amount they charge is, is based directly on the ratings the show gets, mm -hmm then that means that the networks have a certain minimum floor. Producers have a certain minimum floor. And below that floor, they cannot afford to produce programming. Well, the situation is, is that the union demands and the studio, the building operating costs, the studios and things of that nature, has pushed this floor up every single year to a higher and higher figure. And advertising revenues have not kept pace with this. So now the networks are in a position where if a show doesn't garner those ratings in the first three or four weeks, they, they are forced to pull it off the air. The producers are so vulnerable because they don't know from one minute to the next uh, whether the show is going to be on the air for another week or not. Uh, as as uh, some of our, our people may know, they're shooting Seven Brides for Seven Brothers uh, right here in our vicinity. Yeah. I was just down there today talking to some of the people on the crew, and I said, has the show been picked up for another 13 weeks? And the guy says, 
uh, one of the guys says, well, he says, I don't know. He says, we're just kind of producing the show from one week to the next. He says, they just ordered a couple more scripts. So he says, whether it's going to last or not. Well, that's typical, mm-hmm. you see, because the show, by virtue of its ratings, is hovering around the break-even point, you see. And uh, uh, very simply, the, the, the show is not meeting the market needs of the public, and the resultant revenues are not showing up on the books the way they should. Now, how vulnerable, then, would the networks be if a fourth network were established by Christians? Well, uh, it's very simple in terms of the numbers. All one would have to do would be to take uh, somewhere between one and a half and two points uh, away from each of the three networks that's of their audience, one yes. and a half to two percent one and of their half, audience. Not, not percentage-wise, but ratings points. Okay. Mm-hmm. Take one and a half to two rating points away from ABC, CBS, and NBC, and you effectively reduce the maximum income that those networks can realize in terms of advertising revenue below the cost of production. Now, you don't even have to be. Now, see, you don't have to seriously challenge Mm-hmm. the three major networks in terms of their ratings. For example, you look at, at Variety and the ratings and, and the week when the weekly Nielsen's come out or the overnight Nielsen's or what have you, and you see that, that ratings of 10 and 11, 12, 13, 15, those are the nominal numbers. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, a fourth network doesn't have to be a network which has a 12, 14, or 15 rating in terms of a given hour of programming. All it's got to be is a six or a seven. And that would wipe out the others economically. That would destroy (laughs) the whole economic foundation of each of the three major networks because they simply cannot produce and market the programming for the kinds of dollars for for, for anything less than what they're doing right now. So they are extremely vulnerable. No question about it. And uh, the problem with our side is that, well, one of the things that's irritated me, John, since I was a young man, that everybody in our camp, Christian and or conservative, is always bewailing what's going on, and they're never doing anything about it. They're not ready to implement the action. That's one great evil. The second great evil is that they have no respect for thinking. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to produce thinking here, and this is an example of it. Mm -hmm. We are called a think tank. Mm -hmm. The opposition respects thinking and finances it. Mm -hmm. Our side does not. Mm -hmm. Now, what you've said here is very important. It tells us how we can topple the present networks, Mm -hmm. and do it very simply Mm -hmm. if the people in our camp are ready to put up money to do it. You see, the the thing that really has to be brought home is that not only are we talking about a philosophy and and a a theological perspective, a religious perspective, and we're being open and and epistemologically self-conscious about it, I guess is the term we could use, But the point is that not only is it viable and true and right that this should be done, but there is a marketplace Mm -hmm. out there for this particular philosophy. Every single poll taken in the last 10, 11, almost, well, there's a couple of them that even go back, I think, 12, 13 years. Every single poll which has attempted to gauge the philosophic perspective and worldview of the American people has indicated time and time again that they are not getting from the current media producers the product they want and that they would prefer a different kind of product. Now, the conservatives, as we've we've said time time and again, the conservatives constantly bewail the fact that there is such a liberal domination in terms of the media, Mm -hmm. not only in news and documentary programs and but in the, the philosophy which underlies the dramatic programming. But the conservative himself, who has the marketplace at, on his side, and let's face it, the conservatives have the majority of the major dollars in America right now. The only way the liberals survive is by hoodwinking and stealing the conservatives' money in the first place. 
And but the conservative has the marketplace and he has the dollars to do it, but he will not commit his dollars, he will not put his money where his mouth is, to be very, very blunt about it. And as a result of that, the conservative position today has no hearing whatsoever in the media. And when it does, when any conservative appears on television, the conversation is structured in such a way that the conservative view will never get a hearing. Mm-hmm. You see? And all the conservatives have to realize is that they put their money where their mouth is and they set about to produce a consistently conservatively based product that it will that the marketplace will respond to that product and it will put its money where the mouth where its mouth is you see all the conservative has to realize is the fact that he's going to have to have to quit preaching and start teaching and doing those things that he's been preaching for so long yes uh you know i've had some very Interesting experiences along that line. About 10, 12 years ago, there was a premier in a country in Asia who was on our mailing list. Uh, Subsequently, his uh, government was toppled, and I don't even know whether he's alive, and I have forgotten what his name was. The thing that amazed him was the difference between the kind of thinking he encountered when he got our material mm-hmm. and when he met with some uh, conservative Americans who apparently represented a broad strata in this country mm-hmm. and what he found representing this country. I'm uh, talking with some hesitation because I don't want to say too much here. Mm-hmm. Because we also have a similar situation now in that we were called today to provide material to the president of another country mm-hmm. whose problem is that he is severely misrepresented here. Mm-hmm. And uh, he sees two kinds of Americas. And one governs and the other does nothing. Mm-hmm. So... This is the problem we face as we deal with the networks and with the film industry today. It would be so easy to topple them. No question about it. it if, if, uh, uh, if people, for example, in American history, now we just recently saw a television series labeled as a major media event, The Blue and the Gray. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, uh, based upon my own knowledge of, of film and television, uh, they more than likely spent uh, a million and a half, maybe two million dollars an hour. Okay, and I don't remember what it was, six hours or eight hours or whatever it was, uh, in order to produce the blue and the gray, which represented itself as uh, um, a uh, an accurate uh, portrayal of the events of the war between the states. In reality, it was uh, an oversimplified, gross distortion of the events during the war between the states and I found it very very interesting that the only time it ever showed any member of the Confederacy uh, it showed them in a very very negative light it never it gave uh, to Robert E. Lee one of the most important figures in American history and one of the most ignored it gave to Robert E. Lee I think some total of about four minutes of screen time and then that was when he was defeated mm-hmm. now the facts in the case are that that particular television series was shallow. It was um, asinine in the way it dealt with uh, the basic problems in the war between the states, which have never been dealt with publicly in the media. It totally failed in terms of historical accuracy. I had people call me from all over the country after that show was on saying, do you realize that we never had Thanksgiving until after 1863, and yet in the television show, the guy says during one period that's supposed to have taken place in 1862, I'll see you at Thanksgiving dinner. And there was time and time again gross historical inaccuracy, gross misrepresentations of facts. And this particular piece of tripe is uh, labeled as a major media event. Mm-hmm. Well... I think some of those who are listening might be interested in the fact that uh, 
You have quite a circle of actors, screenwriters, and a number of the best technicians uh, that you have put together, and all you need is to go ahead. As a matter of fact, I think people will be interested to know that for a little better than a year, you had me give a course on... Uh, faith and doctrine to these mm -hmm. writers so that their perspective would be better informed. And it was a very uh, successful course. Yes. I, I, think, I think that... Uh, I don't think that, that, that the majority of the people uh, outside the media fully realize how many Christians there are, um, Christian-based artists, how many there are in working today within the secular media, the, the humanistic media. The majority of them are unhappy, but there is no alternative place for them to work. And uh, they, they continue to allow themselves to be intimidated by and to be used by the, the humanists and, and the, uh, the people who have the money already at the major networks and in reality there are more than enough Christians in terms of technical people on camera, off camera, uh, writers, philosophers, historians, uh, uh, marketing people, advertising agents, uh, I can, the list goes on. There are more than enough people out there who are qualified in terms of you know, their credentials to staff and support a production effort to mount this fourth network and to do an excellent job of it. Um, but the problem is, is that, again, there is no viable uh, economic entity in existence to which they can turn. Yes, and the sad fact is that when uh, people on our side are interested in doing something, whether it's a short uh, subject uh, documentary or a film, they go to the people with notoriety who are best known because they belong to the opposition, so it's mm -hmm. the Ray Starks and the Bagelmans mm -hmm. and others like them who are put to work by our side, and certainly they're not for us. They're not going to give us what we need. Well, there's a very, very interesting phenomenon that goes on in this situation. Time and again, as I... Now I'm... As you mentioned earlier, I'm getting ready to do my third picture as a writer and director. And I know that initially, when I tried to get support for some projects that I wanted to do, the major stumbling block I had to face was, even from conservatives, okay, the major stumbling block I had to face was, what have you done? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. <laughs> now, at, now, that sounds very, very humorous. But there's, there are thousands and thousands of people involved in the media who are constantly faced with that same kind of situation. Example, you cannot get into the Screen Actors Guild, okay, unless you've got a job. But you can't get a job unless you've got a Screen Actors Guild card. You see the Catch-22, yeah. the vicious circle that's involved. <laughs> now, that is true of all the unions in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Okay, it is true of the whole establishment in Hollywood. You can't get a picture funded unless you've gotten one funded before. Okay, but you can't get one. You know, and it goes on and on and on. Well, uh, the problem is, is that at some point in that whole vicious circle, someone has to step in is an act of faith. You see, and break that vicious chain. For example, if an actor wants to do a particular role in a film and a producer agrees to put him into a film, the producer gives the actor a letter of intent which says that he wants to use such... The actor then takes the letter to the Screen Actors Guild, gets his card, then he can go back to the producer and say, okay, I can go to work for you now. Mm -hmm. Now, the producer has to step in and cast the actor and, and then give him written notice of that fact before that chain is broken, that vicious circle. Now, the problem uh, that boils down to this, this whole mess... If, if the average person never gets the opportunity until he has already been or done, then quite simply, if we carry that to its logical conclusion, nothing ever gets done. It's, I find it amazing that some of the greatest art in the history of man was done through patronage. 
you see, in which the patrons themselves never expected to be financially remunerated, okay, for supporting a particular artist. Now, I'm, I am not a patronage devotee. I believe that every work of art has to stand its own place, its own, uh, stand on its own two feet in the marketplace. But I also find it very interesting that when I went to the conservatives, they gave me the humanist argument for not getting involved in the funding of a project because they didn't believe that the conservative philosophy was marketable. They didn't believe they could make money with it. So they went to the liberals, and of course the liberals took them to the cleaners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you see? And they ended up losing their money anyway. So I thought, well, you might at least try to support some people in your own camp. If, you, if, if you're going to lose the money, let's do it in our own camp and not, not give it to the liberals. One of the things that McClintock called attention to was that uh, a very high-priced film was popular mm-hmm. because <laughs> it was easier to steal. Yes. If you made a $10 million film, you could steal a million. Mm-hmm. But you mm-hmm. couldn't steal a million if it was a million-dollar film. That's very Would true. you like to comment on that and the fact that uh, the people who walk into Hollywood are regularly taken to the cleaners because they go to the wrong element? Well, it's theft is a way of life in terms of the production of a motion picture project. I'll give you an example of how it works at the lower levels. You just mentioned the big bucks, mm-hmm. okay? The 10% right off the top, which goes into the producer's pocket along with his friends. But it happens all the way down through the, the production company. For example, a production manager or unit manager, uh, an associate producer, etc. one of those three people may have the responsibility for setting the location arrangements insofar as hotel accommodations are concerned when a motion picture or television company goes on location. At any rate, uh, whoever is responsible for making the location accommodations, hotel, meals, etc., can easily go into a hotel manager and say, uh, we're a film production company, we want, we want to rent X number of rooms for X number of weeks while we're here on location. And the hotel manager will say, uh, fine, uh, the corporate rate or the industrial rate or the discount rate, etc., is such and such. But since you're going to be here for such a long period of time at such a high rate of occupancy, we can lower that to such and such and such and such. The production manager will say, fine, bill at your standard discount rate, and you and I will split the difference. Mm-hmm. Now, that kind of thing goes on constantly. And when you begin talking about multi-million dollar picture budgets, you find the vast... Uh, 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 rather considerable quantities, I should say, of money in the form of cash, untraceable, disappears into a myriad of rat holes. And uh, that is one of the reasons why the cost of production is, is, is so high. The other reason, of course, is the union structure, uh, where you're forced to use, um, for example, uh, uh, drivers. Okay, You're forced to use, on certain productions, you're forced to use a certain number of drivers on a particular show. Uh, most of those drivers will only work uh, 20 minutes in the morning or 30 minutes in the morning, 20 or 30 minutes in the evening. The rest of the day they do nothing but sit in the back of the prop truck and play cards. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, uh, the idea that a man could drive his own vehicle to a set and then work all day and drive it home all right, is... Uh, set aside because of union regulations. And they also say, uh, well, we also have insurance considerations. Well, both of those are just false to the core. And uh, another illustration um, of the philosophy at work in terms of the cost of production has to do with the camera rental. Now, you see it a lot of times on film and television credits, uh, cameras by Panaflex and Panavision. Now, most people don't know what that is, but that's a widescreen anamorphic lens system that mounts on a standard camera. Now, this Panaflex camera system can rent the package, camera package can rent from anywhere from $2,500 to $3,500. Now, you can buy for $16,500 the same movement and housing in a more stable camera body, all right, 
but no one buys it. Why? Because Panaflex is the camera with all the bells and whistles and lights on it. But you can, or you can rent that same $16,500 camera for $800 a week. But because it's not as pretty as the Panaflex camera, even though it's a better camera, and I speak now of the Mitchell BNCR. I own a Mitchell BNCR. It's a better camera movement than the Panaflex. But the mentality is not the quality of the equipment, you see, it's who else uses it. Why everyone uses Panavision equipment. So we use Panavision equipment, even though it's three times as expensive and doesn't do as good a job. Now, that kind of mentality, it doesn't take anyone with a, with a degree in, in business from Harvard to understand that those kinds of cumulative effects build up, and you can, right off the top of the bat, you can probably cut most motion picture budgets by 25 to 30 percent right off the top. In other words, the more expensive the camera or whatever it is, exactly, the, the greater the appeal mm -hmm. because it's not quality but an opportunity to get a rake off. That's one. That's one of the classical, one of the classical modes of operating insofar as the whole film and television industry is concerned. And and um, naturally, of course, if if some famous person uses a particular piece of equipment, that's also a primary criteria. Mm -hmm. Again, the individual. Uh, is not concerned with the specific quality of the tools he's used. Mm -hmm. See, he's what's in it for me. See, and that's that, that's a, a basic modus operandi in the whole industry. Well, it's no wonder that uh, <laughs> our politicians and bankers <laughs> feel at home with the world of the media. <laughs> <laughs> they have a lot in common. Yes, they do. As a matter of fact, <laughs> it's 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 really interesting um, for myself um, to sit back on a motion picture and television set and watch all this go on. Uh, most actors never concern themselves with that kind of thing. The actor himself is only interested in how much he's getting in his per diem, you know, mm -hmm. when he's away on location and how much his salary is, and, and how long his limo is, and how big a, a home a mobile trailer he's got, and things of that nature. Uh, those are status symbols among actors. Uh, I would just soon take the money. <laughs> and, and I'll use the standard dressing room. I, I don't have any other need for it. But it's, it's very, very interesting to sit back and watch this kind of thing go on insofar as a production is concerned. Because um, uh, all of them are guilty of it. In one form or another, they're all guilty of it. You see? The union structure is built to protect its members and to pad their accounts and to pad their situations. For example, um, if you just did away with minimum wage guarantees mm -hmm. insofar as the union contracts are concerned, uh, you could probably cut the cost of production another eight to nine, ten percent. For example, um, you have to guarantee certain union categories a minimum number of hours in terms of their salary, all right, or whether they work them or not, mm -hmm. all right. And um, um, uh, those minimum hourly contracts are fairly standard throughout the industry. Uh, otherwise, you don't. The the rationale is otherwise we can't get the good people. <laughs> now, now that is that is, is is the rationale behind it, and yet it's it's a manifest. Uh, uh, it, it it should be self-evident to anyone who sits back and looks at a motion picture company at work that they don't necessarily have the good people, and yet they're paying the premium salaries. You mentioned the fact that the number of uh, new productions on television is decreasing markedly. Well, their survival the rate. Their survival rate. Yes. yes. <laughs> They're producing more and, and, and getting less on. Uh -huh. Let's put it that way. How about the number of films produced per year? Well, the number of films being produced, of course, has been steadily declining for uh, even longer than, than television. It's very strange that the argument that the filmmakers used to make when... Um, uh, television first came along that uh, it would destroy the film and television market. Uh, the same argument was used by the television people when cable came along, that it's going to destroy the television market, uh, when in reality the whole industry has been in a decline since the 50s. 
Uh, there's exceptions to that, of course. Um, I'm, I'm not denying the fact that there are exceptions to that. But um, uh, you find uh, the problem is not so much that that um, the rate of production isn't declining as it is the fact that the producer himself doesn't know how to interpret the needs of the audience. And that's why uh, there are fewer fi films being produced because films today are less successful on the average, or at least that's what it says on one set of books. Um, there are usually two or three sets of books with respect to a particular film production. But films themselves are not as successful at the box office as they once were, on average. Now, you get the exceptions, again, from the shotgun approach. If you have one Star Wars, that can make up for 30 or 40 bombs. Mm -hmm. You see, one Star Wars will pay for 30 or 40 bad motion pictures. In the old days, a motion picture, almost every motion picture, had to stand on its own two feet in the marketplace. And uh, you had some, some tighter controls than you do today. But the reason why there are fewer films being made is just because there, there are fewer people capable of making the product the public wants. If, if, if the filmmaker could really make the product the public wants, then you, you would find uh, the number of films being made doubling and tripling and quadrupling. Because uh, people like uh, um, the Star Wars, um, Close Encounters, etc., and other kinds of films are evidence of the fact that there is no shortage of people to go see motion pictures. You see? That's, mm -hmm. that's the, the major flaw in the whole argument. You see? There's no shortage of bodies out there to go watch motion pictures to put down their 5 or 6 or 7 or $10. There's more than enough of those people. It's just that there's no, no one making the product the public wants to see. So the same answer holds. We've got to mm -hmm. have men on our side who are ready to go into every field. Mm -hmm. We can't sit back and criticize. That doesn't change anything. The problem is, the problem is right now, not a shortage of, of audience, not a shortage of need. There is no drought in the marketplace. There is not a shortage of funds. There is not a shortage of material. You can take every television production that's been made in the last 25 years and reinterpret it from a conservative basis and have a radically different program. There is no shortage of material. There is no shortage of talent. There is only a shortage of those people who are willing to, to take their conservative, their conservative perspective, their biblical base. There is only a shortage of people who are willing to take themselves seriously as conservatives and as Christians. One of my gripes in this area is that when anyone on our side gets into the field, they substitute the cause for quality. In other words, if something Christian is produced, it is usually very shoddy, mm -hmm. cheap. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems to feel that uh, showing the cross periodically is a substitute for <laughs> content. Yes. And it is all excused in the name that it's for the Lord. Mm -hmm. uh, also, very dishonest business practices. You yes. know, somehow they're sanctified because it's for the Lord. Mm -hmm. I've seen uh, some documentaries produced that were uh, conservative, political uh, documentaries. But again, they were shoddy productions. The idea apparently was, let's get as many important senators into this or important political figures so that uh, everybody in Washington will be happy that somehow their face appeared in this documentary. And the result is you get, again, a very shoddy production. We've had a few like that, and I won't mention the names of them. None lately, because none have been produced in the past few years. But uh, a lack of quality seems to characterize what is done on our side. Well, that's, uh, again, because of, of a failure to teach the full implications of doctrine insofar as a Christian is concerned. The modern Christian no longer holds to the, uh, to the reformational view uh, in terms of the priesthood of believer, man is a prophet, priest, and king. Um, uh, he holds only to the idea that it's just enough to preach the gospel. It doesn't have to be done with quality. 
because quality is no longer seen as a reflection of a man's position with God. In, in earlier history, the quality of a man's workmanship said something about the quality of a man's relationship to God. The modern Christian is totally pragmatic. All he's got to do is show the cross, as you said, in, in every other frame, or show it symbolically with a piece of light reflection and a, and a, and a cross uh, in the lens. Um, he's got to quote the Bible every, every two or three minutes. Um, he's got to have the standard uh, four spiritual laws concept. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not negating the evangelical um, uh, motivation in a lot of these films. But the problem is, is that that is not the end-all and be-all of the Christian worldview. Evangelism is not our only calling. Mm -hmm. Our calling is to interpret every single moment of life from a Christian foundation. And it doesn't matter whether we're talking about politics or whether we're talking about art or whether we're talking about education or economics or everything, anything else. Every facet of life has to be reinterpreted from the Christian foundation from a full-orbed, comprehensive Christian foundation. Now, contrast that with humanism. The humanist doesn't come out and start uh, demanding at the end of his, at the end of the Incredible Hulk, we don't see a, uh, an evangelical message there which says, renounce your Christian concepts and ideas and accept the humanist manifesto to chapter 4, verse 8. We don't see any of that, you see. But the facts in the case are that the show is still nevertheless interpreted in every single frame and every single moment from the humanist perspective. Yes. Now, there's a difference between Christian art and Christian-based art. Christian art is self-consciously Christian. It constantly talks about being Christian. It, it quotes the scripture. Uh, it goes through the standard evangelical mode of operating and the, and the whole nine yards. Christian-based art, on the other hand, interprets the whole of reality from the Christian foundation. We may never hear a, a verse of gospel uh, of, of the scriptures in uh, Christian-based art. We may never see the cross, etc. But And we can deal with any subject, but we can carry that subject to its logical consequences from the Christian base of perspective. Yeah. For example, we, don't, we can never let an abortionist off the hook. You see? And if the humanist deals with abortion, he always makes it look in his films as if the person who had the abortion had no other choice. Right? Christian-based art, on the other hand, would point out that the person did have another choice. Christian-based art would also take the abortionist to the logical consequences of his ideas and force him to deal with those, i.e. infanticide, euthanasia, etc., etc., etc. Another example. Recently, there was a film on television here a while back, a movie of the week with George Pappard, in which he played the, the rising and successful uh, architect who, and, uh, who was having an affair with a married woman that had three children. All right? And throughout this whole movie, they talked about love and how much they loved each other. But at the end of the film, he went back to building his building, and she went back to her home. Now, my wife and I sit there and looked at that film, and we said, why did they split up? There's, if once they don't have any definition of what love is. From the Christian perspective, they were committing adultery, mm -hmm. which is failing to keep the law. The Scripture says that if you love me, keep my commandments. That's the absolute biblical definition of love. Well, when that definition's been set aside, then why, on what motivation should they have ever broken up their relationship? Why not cheat? They're already breaking the law. They have already redefined love. But we've allowed the humanist, you see, to redefine the whole of reality. We've allowed him to redefine love in the media. We allow him to redefine the nature and purpose of civil government. We allow him to redefine education, to redefine history. And then Christians and conservatives sit around and complain all day because the humanist is, is portraying in the media all of these wrong images and concepts and ideas of what conservatism is all about. I saw a television program here just a few days ago in which the Christian was portrayed always, of course, as a bigot who was prejudiced, who was biased, who was probably a neo-Nazi or a fascist, etc., 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 you see. Well, now, that is certainly not the characteristic and the basic definition of what a Christian position is all about. But because the Christians are not involved in the media, that is the only stereotypical image that the liberal will ever present. 
And the conservatives have no one to blame but themselves mm -hmm. for that consequence in the arts. Yes, well, our time is just about up. What you said, John, is very, very true, because too often when we get Christian art, all you really have is humanistic art with a Christian label put on it. Amen. And uh, a few Bible verses sprinkled into it. But as far as its character is concerned, it belongs to the enemy. But the humanists don't label their material. No. They present the faith. Mm -hmm. And what we need to do is to present the faith instead of some labels. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope somebody out there will take this seriously and do something about it and start praying about it, and maybe we can get some action here and see a fourth network, see some good productions in the area of films. By the way, I neglected to mention that John's background is theoretical physics. Well, it's been good to have this time with you again, and we would be interested in your reactions to uh, this easy chair as well as others. Thank you for listening, and we'll be with you again in two weeks.